praise pouring in from sea to shining sea. Yes, praise pouring in for yesterday's show about the daily fantasy sports industry and what's going on in New York. And this is another addendum to my thoughts from yesterday. So FanDuel and DraftKings are going to take the New York Attorney General to court and challenge this ban, as they should, and I think they'll win. Looking at the merits of the case, I don't think that this is something that the Attorney General can just step in and, and just say, no, we're not going to allow this. I think there needs to be a proper legislative process where laws are drawn up specifically addressing daily fantasy sports. And I think in lieu of that, that the judge will allow FanDuel and DraftKings to continue to take bets in New York and for New York residents to continue to set lineups in daily fantasy, as they should be able to. I want to make that clear. I think everyone should be able to play daily fantasy sports. Rules banning the sport are just silly, just like rules banning online poker are silly, and rules banning any form of gambling are silly. I think anyone should be able to gamble anything with anyone else at any time. So I want to make that clear. If that wasn't clear in the last show, we have some emails and tweets at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Contact the show also via email, rotounderworld at gmail.com. I just want to make sure you all know I want the daily fantasy sports industry to survive and thrive. And I think all gambling should be legal and unregulated. That is my opinion. Just want to get that out of the way. But there are just aspects of this situation that are fascinating to me. And I've been asking the question over and over again, why do FanDuel and DraftKings hyper-aggressively market their product in such a way that it essentially taunts the state attorney generals across the country, knowing that they exist in this tenuous legal enclave? I have not received an answer to that question. Now, one other aspect of this New York situation, which I find interesting, is if there's an upset and the judge upholds the New York State Attorney General's ruling. That will be a fascinating chain of events. So we're going to see what happens. I'm interested because if the ruling is finalized and the judge agrees, then it's going to feel final. I think the fallout will be interesting because then New York residents will then race to withdraw their funds from the platforms. And at that point, we are going to find out how well run these businesses are. How well are they managing their cash flow? Are they actually Ponzi schemes? I don't think they are Ponzi schemes. I think they are businesses with integrity. I think they're run-like schemes, but I think they are incorporated in the state of Delaware. You have to follow certain policies and procedures to run a business in the United States. And because of that, because of that fundamental aspect, I believe they will have no problems paying out all New York residents as those New York residents log in and close out their accounts. But... There will be some suspense when that happens. You know, I'll be paying attention. It'll be a point of interest. And that's about it. That's, that's all I have on this. I don't have much. If you have listened to previous shows and then you listened to yesterday's show where I addressed the New York State Attorney General shutting down DraftKings and FanDuel in the state of New York, you quickly realize that I don't really have any new questions, thoughts, or opinions. I was essentially just regurgitating things I had said before with some additional histrionics and some jokes, calling FanDuel and DraftKings Wally and the Beave, mocking professional daily fantasy sports players. But other than that, other than a few jokes, it was just stale takes with some jokes. So I think it's been revealed. I don't have much else to say on this. 
Something else I mentioned in the last show is I mentioned Darren McFadden and how he's been hardened to injury, and and there is a, a principle on the books which explains this called Wolf's Law, explains this phenomenon, how the older, warm-blooded vertebrates like humans, like Darren McFadden, are better able to carry packs, better able to withstand the pressures of a strenuous environment as they age. Then we saw last week Darren McFadden, 27 carries, 117 yards. And another year of the old man candidate, five years older than Darren McFadden, D'Angelo Williams, 27 carries, 170 yards, and two touchdowns. And don't forget Chris Johnson, another year of the old man candidate. Two weeks ago, he carried 30 times at age 30. Oh, coincidence. 30 carries for Chris Johnson. Who would have thought a year ago that we would be saying Chris Johnson was in a hospital room, shot, released from the Jets? If you came in and said, Chris, let me tell you something. In less than a year, you will be carrying the ball 30 times for a professional football team. He would tell you, get out of here. You're crazy. You kook. No, it happened, Chris. It, it, congratulations. 30 carries at age 30 for Chris Johnson. No one could have possibly guessed that that could happen. And last week, D'Angelo Williams was second on the Steelers in receiving yards on top of rushing for 170. D'Angelo Williams will be a top five running back the rest of the way. You do realize that. On the Steelers' offense, they have a good offensive line, a prolific offensive system. Lots of red zone carries, lots of receptions to go around for D'Angelo Williams. He is the focal point of the rush attack, and he's very active in the passing game, and he's a member of a prolific offense. You put all of those pieces together, and it puts together a puzzle that says top five running back. So in Dynasty Leagues, I have traded for D'Angelo Williams because he's 32, and he has seven weeks of relevancy left, and then Le'Veon Bell will be back next year, and then D'Angelo Williams, he's a ticking clock. His value is ticking, tick, 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 tick. So if you see a Dynasty League team that will probably not make the playoffs, run to that team and give them an offer to acquire D'Angelo Williams. I did that, and bing! Brand new RB1 rolling out of the garage. I mean, this year of the old man is unbelievable. These are just the new guys. Just in the last four weeks, Darren McFadden, D'Angelo Williams, and Chris Johnson have emerged. I haven't even talked at all about Frank Gore at age 32, well over 2,500 touches in his career, continuing to be productive, putting up RB2 fantasy numbers. We've talked about the year of the old man months ago, in week four, examining the ascent of Gary Barnage, and now you look at the running backs, and it's just it blows your mind. Even though we were talking about it, over a month ago, I was still too slow to adjust, too slow to adjust my assumptions, too slow to adjust my projections to account for all of these older running backs exceeding expectations. I wish I had, <laughs> but no one did. No one could have seen this coming. We at least were talking about it, even if we couldn't project it precisely. Now look at James Starks. James Starks has usurped Eddie Lacy. That just happened. James Starks is 29 years old. He's part of the year of the old man now. Another member of the club. Welcome, James Starks, year of the old man. Take a seat, James. Last week against the Panthers, the Packers were in comeback mode. They abandoned the run. James Starks had six receptions on eight targets. James Starks is a good player. Across the board, you look at his workout metrics, 
45040. That's a 106.3 79th percentile speed score. His burst score, his agility score are all above average. And he's a big running back, 6'2", 218. He's tall, so he runs tall. Oh, he runs tall. Upright runner. Uh-oh, got to stay away from the upright runner. No, no. He's just really agile and powerful and bursty, good receiver. Catch rate, 76.5% this year. Top 40 in the league in catch rate. I mean, James Starks wins in all phases. And Eddie Lacy has been hugely inefficient this year. He's been hurt. He's been out of shape. Whatever it is, James Starks has been the better running back this year, and it hasn't been close. And I think he will continue that. But even though James Starks is an adequate receiver, it's still kind of amazing that the Packers that run such an efficient pass offense would just shirk the pass-catching running back role altogether. They don't have one. They don't have a pass-catching specialist. Every other team in the league is looking for that next Shane Vereen because it's so valuable in a two-minute drill, hurry up, third down, so many different situations. It's great to have that Shane Vereen back on the field. And yet Ted Thompson has ignored that role altogether, hasn't filled it, would rather have John Kuhn on the roster for some reason. And Ted Thompson is grossly overrated. Trey Williams was on the Washington practice squad up until a couple weeks ago when Dallas poached him. And I think they are in the midst of converting Trey Williams into a a poor man's Lance Dunbar. The Packers should have signed Trey Williams to their active roster long before Dallas decided to. Because Trey Williams would have been the perfect fit on the Packers. But they didn't. Why? Because Ted Thompson blew it. There are so many missed opportunities. The fact that Terrell Watson is still on a practice squad and hasn't been signed to an active roster highlights the incompetence that you see at the top of the player personnel departments in the NFL across the league. It's unbelievable. And Ted Thompson is one of those guys. He's not incompetent, but he's overrated. Now, one team that knows what they're doing with player personnel is the Patriots. How do you know that? Because they aggressively pursued Deion Lewis in the offseason, and they installed him in a pass-catching specialist role, and based on his skill set, decided to feature him. And then what did he do? He delivered Deion Lewis, his juke rate on playerprofiler.com, 58.4%. That was number one in the league. We haven't seen a juke rate that good ever on playerprofiler.com. Over 50% evaded tackles per touch. Incredible. And the Patriots leveraged him. 18.7 fantasy points per game. That was top five in the league because the Patriots know how to deploy their talent after they've identified it. So they can go out, they they can identify talent, and they know how to deploy it in an optimal way. But they seem to be in the minority when you look around the league. The moves and the non-moves that all these teams are doing. I mean, San Francisco, come on. I mean, that's just the players they're signing when there are better players on practice squads around the league. It's just mind-numbing. But then the question is, everyone wants to know, well, well, who's the back to own now with the Patriots? Well, that's easy. LeGarrette Blunt is the back to own. Absolutely. It's not James White, nor is it Brandon Bolden, because neither James White nor Brandon Bolden are in any way comparable to Deion Lewis. They aren't close to it as evasive. They will simply be functional in a pass-catching role, and won't be particularly relevant. They will have a few weeks where they have RB2, RB3 numbers, but those will be sparse. The Patriots will have to change their tactics. Less RB pass routes, less RB screens, more LeGarrette Blunt, 
More short passes to Amendola. More short passes to Edelman. More passes to Scott Chandler. Did I say Chandler? <laughs> more passes to Scott Chandler, particularly in the red zone. So I am not picking up either James White or Brandon Bolden. If, if I had to pick up one, I would pick up James White because I think James White will fill that role in a much more limited way, the old Deion Lewis role. But if you look at James White's profile on playerprofiler.com, I mean, six. it's just not, I can't even, it's night and day looking at his profile next to Deion Lewis because James White, he's small, 5'9", 204. He's not fast. He runs a 4.5740, and because he's small, his speed score is 93.5, 34th percentile. He has almost no burst, and he has average agility. I mean, the interesting thing about James White is his best attribute is his strength. He has 23 bench reps, which is 70th percentile, so he has upper body strength. But he looks exactly like Bilal Powell. He is Bilal Powell 2.0. That is who he is. And that's what Bilal Powell brings to the Jets, an occasional RB2, RB3 game when he soaks up a lot of receptions. Completely useless outside of PPR leagues, but in PPR leagues, will be flexible once in a while, but you'll never know which week that is, so he is essentially useless. So James White is as useless as Bilal Powell. Not as useless, he's a little bit more useful because he's on the Patriots as opposed to the Jets. In a vacuum, they're the same player. But on their respective teams, you'd rather have James White than, you, than Bilal Powell because James White is on the Patriots. They throw more, they have more red zone opportunities, so James White will be a better fantasy asset this year than Bilal Powell, but... This, these are the players we're comparing. We're not comparing James White to Giovanni Bernard and Danny Woodhead like we were comparing Deion Lewis to those players. This is an apples and oranges conversation, and I'm just not interested in going out and pursuing James White because someone is guaranteed to outbid me, and, and, and that's fine. You can have him. But you know who's not available on the waiver wire? Who I've heard is available on the waiver wire, but he's not actually available on the waiver wire. And I was surprised because I heard he was available on the waiver wire. And then when I went to pick him up on the waiver wire, he wasn't available on the waiver wire. And I was scratching my head going, why isn't this guy on the waiver wire? Oh yeah, because this guy doesn't belong on the waiver wire. And in no league would this guy ever be on the waiver wire at this point in the season. So why are you telling me he's on the waiver wire? I don't understand why your article is telling me to go pick up Carlos Williams because he's not on the waiver wire in any league. And if you are in a league that has Carlos Carlos Williams on the waiver wire, I guarantee you are the only person logging in in that league. That's what I'm reading. Carlos Williams is waiver wire gold. Really? Okay, sure. Yeah. In what league is Carlos Williams available? None. Oh no, but I heard he's available in 51% of leagues on ESPN and Yahoo. That's our threshold. He qualifies for a waiver wire article if he's less than 50% owned. This percent owned Statistic is the most useless statistic in all of fantasy sports. Those 49% of leagues in which Carlos Williams is owned are the only leagues with active owners. So he's not actually available in any league that matters that any active person is playing in. The leagues in which Carlos Williams is available are free public leagues that have been abandoned and the only one logging in is some bot every month. That's it. No one's playing in those leagues. They're free, public, knucklehead leagues that were essentially used for mock drafting purposes, and that's it. Of course he's going to be available in those leagues. Why are you counting those leagues? If you're going to show me percent owned, show me percent owned of private leagues. Leagues with stakes. 
then that will have some relevance. But if you're including public leagues, then that's useless. You're also including public leagues that are eight-team leagues and 10-team leagues. No one's in an eight-team or a 10-team league anymore. People are in 12-team leagues, and they play for stakes. So if you want to tell me Carlos Williams is less than 50% owned in 12-team leagues with stakes that are private, okay, go ahead. I'd love to read a waiver wire article about that player, but that's not Carlos Williams! He's not available anywhere! And these are fantasy experts writing these articles. And yet, in none of the leagues in which the fantasy writer who's writing the article plays, is Carlos Williams actually available as he writes an article about why you should go pick up Carlos Williams! Stupid! Stop writing articles about players that are owned in all normal active leagues! Maddening! Two weeks ago, I saw articles written about why you should pick up Jordan Reed. There were articles written about why you should be picking up Stephon Diggs three weeks after he was picked up in every league with active owners. I saw an article last week explaining why Willie Sneed was someone I should be targeting on the waiver wire. God. I blame the editors because they're telling the writers, hey, go sort for players that are below 50% owned in this percent own statistic that has no relevance, that is completely fraudulent. Use that fraudulent fake statistic to decide who you're going to write an article about. Because there are players that are actually available on waiver wires that most active owners would find if they clicked free agents. Some of those players are interesting, but those players don't have any articles written about them because they're 10% owned instead of 49% owned. It's unbelievable. My wife is in a 10-team league, a 10-team work league, where only half the owners are active. Do you think Carlos Williams was available in that league this week? Of course not! Of course he wasn't available! <laughs> I wouldn't even classify that as an active league. There are no stakes. It's not a 12-team league. All the owners are not active. And Carlos Williams still isn't available! But if you go to the homepage of ESPN Fantasy Football, there it is. Carlos Williams, waiver wire gold. Literally fantasy football. In a fantasy fantasy league, that's where Carlos Williams is available. Carlos Williams is only available in fantasy fantasy leagues. Fantasy leagues that aren't actually real. Fantasy leagues in your imagination. Fantasy fantasy leagues. Because instead, you could be writing an article about Jonathan Grimes. Because Jonathan Grimes is actually available. And something happened with Jonathan Grimes that matters. He was just promoted from the number three running back on the Texans depth chart to the number two running back on the Texans depth chart. That happened. It was a formal promotion. Do you know who else had a formal promotion up the depth chart earlier in the year? Devonta Freeman. And if you go to Jonathan Grimes and his profile on playerprofiler.com, you'll see elite agility, elite burst. He looks like a lesser known Amir Abdullah. He looks like Amir Abdullah without the fumbles and without the draft capital. He also looks a lot like LaShawn McCoy. That's his best comparable player on playerprofiler.com. He's already the passing down back for the Texans. So he has a chance to immediately this week start to produce 10 fantasy points per game in PPR leagues like a Chris Thompson, like a Charles Sims. He has a chance to produce like that. But the other benefit that's in Jonathan Grimes' favor is that the other running back ahead of him on the depth chart 
is Alfred Blue. Alfred Blue, who doesn't belong in the NFL. Alfred Blue does not have an NFL skill set. He has been at the bottom of the league in every efficiency metric for two straight years. There's one player in the NFL that I would say, this player stinks, because I don't like to hit these players with, oh, that player sucks, he stinks. They play the most violent sport in the world. They deserve some respect. But I do reserve the right in this one case, in the case of Alfred Blue, to flatly state he can't play football. He sucks. He stinks. He never should have been drafted into the NFL. Alfred Blue doesn't deserve an NFL uniform. He doesn't have the skill set. He's not fast enough. He's not quick enough. He's not agile enough. He doesn't have NFL caliber running back ability. Period. So that's who Jonathan Grimes has left to overtake on the Texans' depth chart. So he has talent and a great opportunity horizon staring at him. That's a player I'd love to read about in a waiver wire column, but I can't because they're writing paragraph after paragraph about Carlos Williams, who's already owned everywhere. Oh, but you know who else they'll write waiver wire articles about? The other guy in the Carlos Williams waiver wire article that I'm reading. (laughs) This is great. He's available in a lot of leagues. He is. I I can't dispute this. Kristen Michael, (laughs) right? Right? I mean, Kristen Michael, who is the Jeff Janis of running backs, right? Kristen Michael, the Jeff Janis of running backs. Oh, God, the lazy analysis comparing Jeff Janis to Kristen Michael. They're both athletic specimens that haven't produced in the NFL. That's why they're similar. That's why we always put those two together. We tether them together and always talk about them as one entity. Kristen Michael slash Jeff Janis. Jeff Janis slash Kristen Michael. Always going to pair them together like a nice steak and a cabernet. They're not similar at all, Jeff Janis and Kristen Michael. Kristen Michael is a third-year running back from a major conference school who has never produced for a full season at any level of football. He can't play. He's like Alfred Blue. Kristen Michael's like an athletic version of Alfred Blue. At least Kristen Michael is athletic. Alfred Blue doesn't even have that going for him. Jeff Janis is a second-year receiver from a small school who has shown... Dominance on the football field has proven he can play. So Kristen Michael and Jeff Janis are in no way similar. So you can go ahead and stop constantly pairing them together in your analysis, your lazy analysis, lumping those two entities into one bucket. They don't belong in the same bucket. God, I'm agitated. I'm agitated. People that follow me on social media, they agitate me. Because I'll write a tweet about Jarvis Landry and how the Dolphins have been seriously misallocating their resources. They should be giving more snaps and targets to Kenny Stills instead of Jarvis Landry, but they are not doing that. Sir, this is a serious misallocation of resources. (laughs) My awful Saving Private Ryan quote. So I'll write a tweet like that. The Dolphins have misallocated their resources in the passing game. And then someone will tweet back at me, inevitably, yeah, they need to play Jeff Janis more. Jeff Janis isn't on the Dolphins. What they're doing is... Members of my audience mocking me, mocking my conviction in Jeff Janis. My conviction in Jeff Janis, a second-year athletic receiver from Saginaw Valley State. I get these messages all the time. An email, social media, contact the show, at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. Oh, I haven't heard you mention Jeff Janis this week. Is Jeff Janis Radio finally dead? No, it's not dead. Because the one time Jeff Janis had an opportunity, received meaningful snaps... 
He rolled up 79 yards on four targets. And I understand Aaron Rodgers went out of his way to not praise Jeff Janis after the game, as if that's a big deal. We're examining things that Aaron Rodgers didn't say. But I, I think I understand what's going on between Jeff Janis and Aaron Rodgers. I just don't think Jeff Janis and Aaron Rodgers have rapport. I think there's an intellectual sophistication and congruence between those two. Jeff Janis is a country boy. Aaron Rodgers is a Cal Berkeley nerd. These guys don't go to the same bars. This is not a Tony Romo, Jason Witten best friend situation. These are two very different guys with very different sensibilities. And we knew this Jeff Janis thing was going to take some time. And the moment James Jones signed, we had John Paulson on the show lamenting the James Jones signing and what that meant for Janice's potential. How the James Jones signing would mute Janice's fantasy output this year. And that's exactly what happened. We talked about this in August. But all it really meant was that because the Packers signed James Jones, we needed to freeze lock and stash away Jeff Janice on our taxi squads. And that's what we've done. Because James Jones, eight years earlier, when he was a second-year receiver from San Jose State, he only posted 274 yards and a touchdown. Because playing receiver is hard, and it takes a while to become acclimated to the position and become productive and understand all the nuances of the position. Developing rapport with your quarterback, that all takes time. There are very few Amari Coopers and Odell Beckham Juniors out there. So I'm not sure why I shouldn't be patient with Jeff Janis. I, I, I Brian Walters is breaking out right now with the Jacksonville Jaguars at age 28. And I'm picking him up everywhere. I have Brian Walters in every league. The fact that Brian Walters is highly available in every league is a head-scratcher to me. Because if Alan Hearns misses time and he sprained his foot and he's in a walking boot, so there's a good chance Alan Hearns misses Week 10, Brian Walters becomes the number two receiver for Blake Bortles, who's been posting 300-yard after 300-yard after 300-yard performance. Most Jacksonville Jaguars games come complete with a fourth quarter filled with garbage time and fantasy points. And so you're going to want to start Brian Walters if Alan Hearns misses week 10. But even in the deepest leagues, I'm able to get Brian Walters. It's crazy. I don't know why. I wonder why there's some strange bias against a player like Brian Walters from Cornell on playerprofiler.com. Brian Walters doesn't even have a 40 time. Very, very available. And he's 28 years old. Jeff Janis is 24, and his best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is Alshon Jeffrey. Alshon Jeffrey, incidentally, has been the best wide receiver in all of fantasy over the last four weeks. And I told you that would happen. So the Jeff Janis haters, they're impatient. They're jerks. But they're not merely impatient jerks. I really do. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I think the Jeff Janis haters hate America. They wear socks during sex. They love to receive oral sex but they never give out oral sex. Jeff Janis haters are miserable assholes, and way too many of them follow me on Twitter. These are the people that will wait until week three and vandalize past tweets from weeks back with some ex post facto playing the result reminder that I was wrong about DeMarco Murray, when in fact, I was actually right about DeMarco Murray. DeMarco Murray has a super high floor, is a super safe, super reliable RB1. So you were wrong. The guy that said I was wrong in week four about DeMarco Murray. No, sir. You were the one that was wrong. I was actually right. So go ahead and delete your troll tweet that is appended to my original tweet, please. You are vandalizing my tweets. Please scrub that off my timeline, asshole. Oh, but I was wrong about Charles Johnson. I'll be reminded about that. 
Charles Johnson, who broke his ribs and is averaging over 25 yards per reception the last three weeks. And so I'll tweet about Jonathan Grimes, and then I'll get a tweet about Charles Johnson or Tevin Coleman being a bad call. Why are you people vandalizing my tweets with irrelevant negativity? Why do you do that? I, I want I, it, It's weird. And so from now on, when people vandalize my tweets, they, they taunt me or mock me with some irrelevant message, some irrelevant mention just below the tweet that I just posted. I'm going to go ahead and block those people. I'm blocking all those people. Oh, you're too sensitive. Stop being so sensitive. No, I'm not too sensitive. I take pride in my work. The written word is art, just like a painting is art. Now, most tweets are bad tweets, and most paintings aren't worth your time to look at, but some tweets can still be considered artfully crafted, and I don't want my tweets defaced with demeaning, trolly messages. It's like if I were a shop owner. Imagine if I were running a shop, and I was carving rocking horses, and I was just giving them away for free. Because that's what I'm doing on Twitter. Just writing messages, giving away content for free. So imagine I have this rocking horse shop. And someone comes up to that shop and smashes the window to the shop. Free rocking horses. Doesn't grab a rocking horse, just smashes the window. Do you think I'm ever going to let you into that shop ever again and ever have a rocking horse after you smashed my window? Hell no! You're blocked! Oh, no, 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 no. You can't block me. I'm just holding you accountable. No, there is no accountability. Because I have no responsibility to tweet. There is no need to hold me accountable. I am not obliged to tweet. I am volunteering to tweet. I am not getting paid to tweet. My tweets are a product of volunteerism. It's like if someone was volunteering at a soup kitchen and spilled soup on the floor. And then some Twitter heckler just magically appeared to scold that volunteer. And tell him what he did wrong and how he can prevent future spills. Telling him what a bad job he did pouring that soup. That's the analogy. And what would happen if some heckler appeared at a soup kitchen? What would happen to those individuals? They would get escorted out of the building, literally blocked. But there is different rules for different people. If I know you, if I respect you, then absolutely you can send me some sarcastic tweet. No problem. That's funny to me. If you're some anonymous drive-by heckler, no way. It's like a comedian on stage. If I'm on stage and I'm telling a joke, and some drunk nobody comes up on stage and grabs the microphone, we're going to escort that guy out of there, and he's never going to be allowed to come back to any of my shows ever again. Blocked. Oh, you were just trying to be funny? Oh, you were just trying to hold my joke accountable? Too bad. You're gone. But if Louis C.K. wants to come up on stage and grab the mic, oh, the floor is yours, sir. So if someone I respect on Twitter wants to poke fun at me, wants to mock me, say something condescending, I will take it in stride. I'll understand the spirit of it. This is a peer. But if you are an anonymous drive-by heckler, you are not a peer. You're gone if you do that. Because what are you doing? If, if I don't know you, if you're not a peer, then you're just running up on stage and gaining notoriety from my audience by insulting me with a trolly message directly under my original tweet. You're gaining notoriety from my audience, the audience I created by insulting me. If there's anything in this world that should be blockable, a blockable offense, it is that. These miserable people, they live in the swirl of negativity. And they just lurk around on social media playing gotcha. I don't understand that mentality. I just don't share sensibilities with these people. I don't understand where they come from. But they are a plague. It is dispiriting. It's, it's wearying. So I have a policy. You can embrace my messages on social media. You can help to elevate my content, contribute to a conversation, help to make it better. 
And if you're not going to do that, I will block you out. Because you're the same people that when a car drives by and splashes someone, you turn around and laugh in their face. Well, now I'm laughing in your face. <laughs> you're blocked.